Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of the Project MedTech Podcast. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. For more information on Project MedTech and to sign up for our monthly newsletter, visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, and follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcasts by searching MedTech Money on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. MedTech Money is an interview-style podcast focused on demystifying raising and investing capital for MedTech companies. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Galen Data. Galen Data is the cloud for medical device makers. The Galen Cloud provides a configurable platform for device-to-cloud connectivity that is compliant to FDA, HIPAA, and CE Mark standards. Built on 40-plus years of collective experience developing compliance systems for the medical device industry, the company's goal is to make medical device cloud connectivity available to all at a fraction of the cost while shaving months off the development timeline. In this episode, our guests, Allison Berkland at Nanopath and Kate Rumrill at Ablative Solutions and I discuss medtech companies they are both with, comparing and contrasting raising money at a Series D versus Series A, culture at a Series A versus Series D, coming into the CEO role versus being a co-founder, and so much more. This is our second episode that we shot at the Boston Biomed Device Conference in Boston, Massachusetts in September of 2022. So this is a live podcast in front of a live audience. So without further ado, my discussion with Allison Berkland and Kate Rumrill. Medical innovation starts with medical discussion. Talking about the future All right. All right, everyone. Uh, we're going to get started with our uh, second session here. So uh, this is the first time we've, we've had 111 episodes of the Project MedTech podcast, recorded another 10 that haven't been released yet. Um, we've done 100 of MedTech Money. This is the first time I've ever done it live at an event uh, in person. So I started the podcast during COVID. So I've only interviewed one person <laughs> face-to-face, and now we're doing the second one just in front of everyone. So anyways, this will be released uh, online as well from a recording standpoint. Um, but welcome to the podcast. Uh, <laughs> intros to both of you. Uh, who you are and, and what company you're with and what you're working on would be great. Yeah, uh, really excited to be a part of this live podcast experience. I think this is my first podcast as well. So uh, my name's Allison Berkland. I am the co-founder and chief technology officer at Nanopath based locally here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We are a spin out of Dartmouth College. So myself and my co-founders, PhD research up at the engineering school there. And we are trying to develop a better alternative to existing molecular diagnostic solutions. So because of COVID, we all really understand what a PCR is and are acutely aware of what its shortcomings are as well. And so we're trying to develop something better. And by better, I mean faster and something that can provide more granular information. So we're actually eliminating that ubiquitous need to make many, many copies of DNA and RNA in order to detect it. 
Uh, we're starting in the outpatient women's health space, so rapid characterization of pelvic and gynecologic infections. So women goes into her OB-GYN, can know what bug is causing the infection, what its antibiotic susceptibility is, uh, and get a treatment or a targeted treatment plan right on the spot there. So uh, just closed our Series A, so quite early stage, but really growing our company uh, and excited to be here and share more. Well, thanks, Dwayne, for uh, inviting me here. Sorry about the mic difficulties. Um, my name is Kate Rumrell. I'm the president and CEO of Ablative Solutions. Uh, I've been with the company going on four years now. Uh, I joined when they closed their, their first tranche of Series D. Uh, and at that point, it was a, um, a, a growth round in the clinical stage where uh, we needed to build out an organization and uh, start our pivotal trials. Um, Ablative Solutions is developing a technology in the hypertension space uh, using a catheter-based uh, technology to deliver alcohol in the perivascular space around uh, the renal arteries uh, to where we are decreasing um, uh, blood pressure uh, to treat hypertension instead of medications that nobody likes to take and uh, more than 50% of people are non-compliant to it. So it's a single procedure that uh, is done in each of the main renal arteries and then we can also treat some of the accessories. Uh, and uh, we're, as I said, we're, we're in the pivotal trial stages right now, so stay tuned. Awesome, so while you have the microphone, um, Series D, you said it closed? And yeah, so it was, uh, the, uh, the Series D, it was intended to get us through the pivotal trials and uh, regulatory pathway uh, for the company. And then, of course, Series E will be our growth round. And so it was set up uh, with tranches where we had specific milestones that we had to meet. And so when I joined the company, uh, they had just you know, signed the term sheets and closed the Series D uh, first tranche. Uh, and then I came on board and we've now had four subsequent tranches uh, of payments as we've met our milestones in the midst of COVID, which has been a lot of fun. Yeah, awesome. So we have a whole separate podcast called MedTech Money that's related to raising capital. Yep. But I'd like to hear from both of you, just you're in two separate spaces, closing a Series A, closing a Series D. Can you talk about, can you just maybe like Talk about your experience with closing that. What were investors looking for at your stage? And yeah. then what, for you, I'm guessing you raised a seed round as well. What were investors looking for there? So I'd, yeah. I'd love to hear the compare Great. and contrast. Well, since I still have a microphone that works, maybe I'll start uh, and then I'll turn it back over. So um, this is actually my second CEO position. Um, prior to this, I was the CEO of a, uh, a company in the neuromodulation space, uh, and we were looking to uh, develop a product to treat depression. So it's, it's kind of fun for me to co compare and contrast raising money in my first CEO job compared to the one I'm in now, um, both from the perspective of in my current role, we already had a nice contingent of investors sitting around the table. And so for me, we did oversubscribe. So we did bring in one additional investor during my tenure here, but it really was 
working with our existing investors to make sure that we were delivering value to them and reaching our milestones. Um, whereas in my prior role, I was actually going. I was actually out, you know, pounding the pavement, trying to find people to invest, and trying to find people to invest in mental health companies, especially medical device mental mental health companies, is pretty much impossible. Um, so I, you know, went out and and I probably talked to two hundred or more investors to finally find you know, a small subset of folks to, to invest in the company. So um, it's, it, it's, been, uh, it, it's been an interesting ride over the last eight or so years that I've been uh, in, in the corner office. Yeah, so I guess I'll start back at the seed round, which is I was still a PhD student at Dartmouth. My co-founder was a postdoc. The first pitch we ever did, still the worst meeting we've ever had, uh, it was November 2019. We had sent the deck uh, in advance of the conversation. So obviously this investor kind of had a, a bird's eye view as to what we we're working on. We get on the call. Be, we're still on the cover slide of the company, right? Start talking about what we're about to do. And he says, nobody's interested in infectious disease. Nobody's interested in diagnostics. And just, just proceeded to tell us why neither of these spaces make money, um, which is fair. Uh, Obviously, the market changed for the, for the, you know, not for the good of the world, but for the good of us. COVID pandemic happened March 2020. Suddenly, we have this renewed interest in infectious disease diagnostics, this renewed understanding of all of these shortcomings associated with existing tools. Um, and we had a ton of interest. We, our, our seed round was led by the Y Combinator guys, Max and Sam Altman. They actually created a separate fund that was for deep tech, so moonshot companies that are really pursuing novel science as opposed to software consumer products. There was a cohort about six or seven of us, so that was nice chunk of change that we kind of just held on to. And I told my co-founder, you cannot let me stop my PhD. I must finish. I am six months away. Do not let us run away with this money. Finished the PhD, began to burn through the capital. Um, and I think at that time, what Max and Sam were looking for was a platform, right? We were selling a platform technology. We were selling the promise of this novel solution. So I was working on sepsis. My co-founder was working on liquid biopsy, two huge diagnostic markets. And we were generating data in both just to show the versatility of the tool. I think as we approached our series A, diagnostics fail generally because of they're not able to make money, not because it doesn't work. So I think our Series A investors really wanted to see the business model, really wanted to see us begin to focus, to pick that beachhead market, to do the work, to show how are we making money, who are we selling this to, what is the path towards revenue generation. So we went back, did the homework, interviewed over 100 different folks, laboratory directors, payers, clinicians, all across the board to really try to understand where our technology would create the most value. And that's how we landed in the women's health space. Um, it is, in fact, a coincidence that myself and my co-founder are both women and landed in the women's health space, though we're very passionate to be there. And anecdotally, as women, we know there are no point-of-care tools in the outpatient women's health space. Um, we, went, we went through the process very agnostically, very scientifically, very excited to be there. ton of white space, UTIs, STIs, HPV, TRIC, BV. There are no molecular diagnostic tools that are currently being deployed at the point of care, so we're looking to be kind of that one-stop shop. Awesome. So while we're still on the money discussion, um, I'd like to just, what about the due diligence you do 
bringing in an investor. So that's obviously very different depending on the stage, right? I mean, at a seed round, a Series A, you're probably um, not as selective you as you are at a Series D level. Um, so for you, as you are raising money, what kind of due diligence were you doing on investors? Um, and, and then for you at the Series D, you know, it's current investors, you did oversubscribe, but talk to me about those conversations and maybe how they differ. So we'll start here and, and then go to move to you. Yeah, so I'll say with the seed round, we were just happy to get a check and it happened to be two really great guys that really had, had a name for themselves and could really make a ton of intros for us and open a lot of doors. Um, another participant in that round in our seed round actually was a co-lead for our Series A huge shop out in Palo Alto, Norwest Ventures. Their team is expert in kind of health system services, and that was interesting for us. I spoke to the commercial risk of diagnostics, so they really could open doors on how we're actually delivering this tool. Um, but for us in Series A, we wanted someone credible. We wanted someone with a dependable LP, a big fund, uh, and someone that gave us the best deal. That, that's what it really would push came to shove. There was, there was a lot of interesting potential partners, but we want to sell as little of our, as our company as possible. That's great. Yeah, I think regardless of what stage you're in, it's it's building out your story and building out the credibility of the company um, and making sure that you are able to package it in a way so it's easy for the investors to be able to go through it and see what you have, see what you don't have, and, and be transparent about it. Um, because, you know, again, if you're a Series A or, or a seed round, you're not going to have all the answers. You're not going to have every single thing that an investor has on their checklist for diligence. Um, but you can say, we don't have this, but this is our plan to fill that gap. And this is where the money is going to be spent. And so, you know, fast forward Series B, Series C, Series D, um, it's, you know, it's thinking about what are those things that are going to be important um, and really being able to explicitly define what you're going to spend that money on and not over-promising um, because so often uh, for us as startups, we want to do everything. We're excited about our technology. We're excited about all of the potential opportunities for it, but you've got to be laser-focused and, and investors are looking for that. You know, you can talk about the white space. You can talk about, well, once we get this beachhead, then we can expand into this, but be very explicit in this is what we're going to spend our energy on with this investment. Yeah, and I, I know I said this isn't med tech money. This isn't this podcast series, but I, I'm curious for you. Um, the, the current market climate from an economic standpoint obviously affects how companies raise money. At a series, and we work with at Project MedTech a, hand, a, a lot of pre-seed, seed, Series A stage companies, even Series B to a certain extent. We don't see too much of an effect in terms of the economical the economic situation, right? But at a Series D level, mm -hmm. I'm curious: Did you get pushback? And, and from a timestamp perspective, we're recording this on September 28th of 2022. So, anyways, I'm curious: Did you get pushback on? Well. At a Series D, you're either going public, it's probably a private equity deal to exit, it's maybe staying in commercialization, maybe a strategic coming in. Did you face a lot of those questions, especially now? Yeah, absolutely. And so 
and I don't know if it's so much the especially now. I think it's just, uh, you know, no matter where you are, you need to know what your your long-term strategy is and you need to be able to articulate it, right? So, you know, as, as was mentioned a minute ago, you need to know what, you know, how are you going to make money? How are you going to commercialize? But then also, are you going to go it alone? If so, what is that? commercialization model? Are you focused on the U.S.? Are you focused on Europe? Are you focused on Asia PAC? You know, what what is that strategy? And to be able to articulate that um, to potential investors, again, making sure that you're credible in, in not over overstating what you could do as a standalone company. Because Everybody can kind of connect the dots if you're acquired. If there's an M&A transaction, all of a sudden you have access to very large sales forces from the person that, or the, the company that acquires you. But you have to be prepared to go it alone. And so building out that revenue model and being able to show that, hey, we can be profitable even if we do go it alone is, is a very powerful statement. Yeah. Uh, so... I'm done with the money conversations, <laughs> but I do want to ask about leadership, CTO, CEO roles, right? And co-founders. And we spend a lot of time with our startups on uh, culture within the company, right? And so you're a CEO who got, who are brought, who's brought in, but I want to start with you, right? So you and your co-founder are still involved in the company. You're the CTO. Uh, your co-founder is the CEO. We, we spend a lot of time talking to our startups on what do you really want? Do you want to be a CEO that stays in place and commercializes the product and takes it through a Series B or a C? And so I'm curious, you just had, I'm sure you just had these conversations. What are those like? What were those conversations like internally? How did you settle on CTO and CEO? Um, yeah, I just, I want, I want to know what those conversations were like. Yeah, so we were, we were speaking earlier and myself and my co-founder, her name is Amoga, we do everything together effectively. Sure, my interests lean more towards the product development and the sciences and her lean more towards the business development, but really early on, before a company was even a company, we, we formed it just to write grants, federal grants, as a vehicle to see if we could pull in non-dilutive funding. We're like, who's gonna be the CEO? Who's gonna be the CTO? And we're like, I don't care, do you care? I don't care, and it effectively came down to the flip of a coin. And uh, as I mentioned, we have a fantastic relationship, do everything together. A lot of folks, but, uh, no, but, yeah. but but literally a flip of the coin. I don't know if it was a coin or like a piece of. I don't remember what the exact okay. what the exact. Uh, but it was. It might have been a stick. It was some type of random allocation of. Wow. of um, I have, to, I have to think back on that. Um, it was it was now 2019. We were in Maine. It was the dead of winter. Uh, we had a bunch of friends up there from Dartmouth, and we were having this conversation at 11 o'clock at night. So a lot of chaos going on around us, but the decision was made then. Um, and so you know, we talk about ourselves all the time. Does it make sense for us to begin to think about how we divide work to be more efficient? And should I focus on these areas of the company? Should you focus on these areas of the company? Not necessarily in a breakdown that would be traditionally CEO or CTO, just dividing these things up as a function of our interest and what we'd like to learn. Um, but we found we've been successful to date by having both of our brains in the room, both of our brains hearing all the information that's been given to us, and then both of us making a decision together. Um, 
When we think about the cost burden of that, it's fairly negligible relative to the potential success of the, the business. And so I think we're going to stay as heavily involved in all areas of the business until it's no longer possible and we know that time will come. But for now, we're able to manage it and uh, we're just we're excited to learn as much as possible about all areas of, of this business. That's great. And, and so from your side, uh, it's different. You were brought in as the uh, CEO. Did you replace co-founders? Did you replace a CEO that helped maybe bridge that gap from A to, to C, right? And, and, and kind of talk about how that's different, right? Coming into a situation rather than starting it from the ground up. Yeah, absolutely. So um, just a little bit of background on myself. I've been in the industry for going on 35 years now. I started out, uh, you know, as, as a, a, a toxicology uh, scientist, lab scientist, um, worked my way up through clinical and medical affairs uh, track. And um, my first CEO role, I was uh, actually tapped on the shoulder by uh, the chairman of the board who I had worked with previously and he said we really want you to come in we need somebody with your background in product development clinical programs uh, you know really bringing products to market and so that was my first entree into a CEO role my current position um, somewhat similarly so I didn't replace, so, so the acting CEO at the time was a co-founder. Um, he's actually stayed on with the company. He moved into the chief medical officer role because he is a physician by training. And we often joke that, uh, you know, when he introduces me, he says, yeah, this is Kate. She's our CEO. She does all of the things I don't like to do. And I get to do all of the things that I have fun doing as the chief medical officer. So he gets to do all of the physician stuff. And uh, it's worked really well for us. I, all, I, I acknowledge, though, that I'm very lucky. Sometimes that doesn't always work out when you have a change, uh, you know, a, cha a change uh, in, in the, the ranks at the top. Um, but he and I have, have had, the transition has been really great. Yeah, that's, that's great. So how much reflection, Allison, do you do when you look at, uh, every, mo most startups know, right, that the skill set you need at every stage as leadership is, is kind of different, right? And one person could, theoretically do that, right? But that's not everyone's goal. I mean, some people want to evolve and end up doing those things. How much reflection do you do, you do with your co-founder of, hey, we're really enjoying this right now. Do, you know, do we really want to keep leading the company if we look fast forward five years from now? Or do you just kind of say, hey, we'll take it as we go? I think we're more in the we'll take it as we go mindset. We're enjoying what we're doing right now. We think we're being successful at it. Uh, we're learning a ton. I think Amoga and I wake up every day excited to go to work and want to continue to lead the company as far as we can take it until it no longer becomes enjoyable. And that's the plan for now. And obviously, if a very unique opportunity presents itself, that could shift our mindset. But right now, we're really committed to getting the technology we developed right out into the world. There's a, there's a deep, deep emotional attachment to seeing this through and really making sure this gets to market. That's, that's great. So one of the things I, I have questions on, too, is commercialization. Um, so there's a lot of tech out there. Uh, I don't know, 80 to 90% of the devices cleared in the U.S. are 510Ks, which by definition are 
uh, substantially equivalent to something else on the market. So commercialization is going to be difficult. Getting into the U.S. healthcare system is difficult. When you were found, founding your company, so it's a two-part question, one for each of you. You're founding your company. How much time did you talk about the problem, but also the commercialization hurdles that you knew you were going to eventually face? And then I'm curious for you, you're coming into a company that's later stage. They've probably proved out some of those things. How much of those changed from what the original plan was? I'm, I'm sure you talked to the co-founder, the chief medical officer, right? Uh, I'm curious on how much of that changes and how much pivoting happens once you get into that commercialization phase. So we'll start with you, Allison. Yeah, so our technology can just detect DNAs and RNAs in a highly multiplexed way. So we were very heavily pushed into the research tool space, to the companion diagnostics space, such that we could kind of avert, uh, you know, avoid some of those large regulatory hurdles, expensive time that's just not motivating for us. So we made it very clear to our investors, our intention is to get this product to patients. This is the pathway. We understand we're going to need to systematically de-risk it. Uh, but the easier path wasn't the path that excited us. I don't think it's the path that excites the folks that are working with us to build this. So um, we understand it's the more challenging path, but hopefully one we can we can navigate and, and see it through. So, so real quick before you answer, this is something, another thing we talk about on the podcast frequently, which is we get a lot of startups who come to us and they'll say, well, we can make this regulatory claim and be a 510K, or this one might be a de novo, or maybe this is a PMA, right? And a lot of times they think that the easiest path to market is a stepwise approach. Um, and they want to go after, you know, oh, well, we can do this and then we'll commercialize. Commercializing's hard, right? So I, I just, I wanted to highlight the point you brought up because... Uh, not a lot of startups think in that manner and they're influenced by their investors, their board to say, oh, well, once we can get it approved, we could sell it, we'll sell it. And that's just not reality. There's a lot of companies that fail at commercialization because it's so difficult. So I just, I just want to highlight on the podcast. Uh, I know it's, again, it's unique because we're live, but I'm trying to put the mindset on that this is going to be recorded and, and, and published. But uh, uh, so, so Kate, the original question, oh, the changing in commercialization strategy. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as, as we've already talked about, you have to have your basic premise from the beginning, right? So even when you're talking about the seed round, you have to have an idea of where, where you're headed. But the further along you get, the expectations change as far as how detailed you are in that plan. And so thinking about the commercialization model, actually just before I got up here, uh, I was talking to um, my head of market development and market access and we were having conversations about, okay, we need to do this, we need to do that. And it is changing, it does evolve. And part of it is because you're not living and working in a vacuum. So there's things that are going on, you know, you, you may have the perfect, perfectly laid plan and an idea of what you're doing, and then you know you embark on your clinical program, which may take two years, three years, ten years, depending on on uh, you know what you're trying to do. Um, and, and the world evolves around you. So you know, again, I took this job in the spring of 2019. Never expected, you know, what ended up happening in 2020. But also just, you know, different competitors entering the market, new medications that, that come to market, uh, you know, all of those sorts of things that you have to continue to think about. And then even, um, 
the evolution of things like MDR in Europe. You know, it, there was a time when everyone said, oh, I'm, I'm just going to go to Europe. Forget about the U.S. I'm just going to go to Europe. I'm going to get my beachhead over there. I'm going to prove that I can commercialize this product, and then somebody's going to buy me. It's not so easy to commercialize in Europe anymore. And so the pendulum's kind of swinging now where everybody's coming back to the U.S. and saying, well, if I can get that beachhead in the U.S., if I can commercialize with a limited market release in a, in a very focused geography in the United States and prove that out, then, you know, maybe good things come from that. So, and then, of course, you've got Brexit and the whole U.K., um, and all of that. So, so it's been fun to see that evolution. Yeah, we uh, just did an episode in 109 on the history of the EU MDR. We talked to a former BSI, which is a notified body in Europe, um, uh, consultant who told us he was there through like 2012 to 2016 when the MDR was being written. Uh, and he kind of gave us access to that. So there's a whole for people listening, if you really want to listen to an hour episode on the MDR, you can. <laughs> it's on Project MedTech, episode 109. Uh, but it's, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, the amount of conversations I've had with European clients on the U.S. healthcare system and insurance, the healthcare system, how you can commercialize because it is kind of complex, um, has been crazy because they're all looking to come to market here in the U.S. now. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about is team, uh, recruiting your team, building your team, uh, how important that is, maybe some strategies on how you preserve culture in your startup and how you've kind of recruited your team as well, right? Because what we're facing as startup companies is you're competing against the behemoths of the world that can offer generally higher salaries, right? Maybe a little bit more stabilization, uh, although I'm not sure you can make that argument. Like it's, you can't make that argument, but you can at the same time. So I'm just curious on how you've kind of combated that as a startup of saying, hey, come take a chance, join the startup, quit your stable job, and we're going to do this together. Uh, and then once they get on board and you've convinced them, how do you make sure that culture is still the same of a place that they want to be and work and make a difference? It's a hard problem. I will say that um, it's it's not easy. It's something we have to work work at every day. But when push comes to shove, we want folks that want to work at Nanopath on Nanopath technology. So, say we're matching the salary of a, you know a, a big other publicly traded company, and they still choose the stability of that company. It wasn't it wasn't the right fit. So we can't be upset. You know, is that we want folks that see joining an early stage startup as a career defining opportunity, right? Not just another line on the resume, but oh, maybe I've done this once or twice. I've watched someone more experienced do it. And now I'm ready to really take ownership of it and really are excited by that. So when we lose out to the larger companies, sure, it might sting for a moment, but it probably wasn't the right fit. And the people on the team that we're starting to build all have that energy of, I want to prove myself, I want to make an impact on this product, on this company. From a cultural standpoint, in terms of talent retention, we're trying to be very human about our policies. If you need a Friday afternoon off or you need to go see your child, please go do that. You don't need to go through some red tape of telling me, I trust you, I want you to get your work done, I want flexibility for work from home. 
be productive, be happy. We give wellness stipends even as an early stage startup. We want people to come to work and feel happy about the work that they're doing and you know, ask any of our employees if we're, we're holding up to that standard. I think they'd say yes, but if not, we are welcome. We welcome the feedback because really do want to build a great company, not just put out the product. So that's how we've been thinking about it. That's great. Yeah, I, I, I think one of the challenges is um, acknowledging the fact that not everyone is cut out for a startup. And being able to, when you're having those first interviews with people, really get to the bottom of what is it that's motivating them? Why do they want to join the organization? And, you know, I've had plenty of conversations with colleagues that are in big companies. I'd love to have them join my team, but I know they never will. And I hope they don't because they'd be miserable. Because, you know, there's definitely a difference between working for a large company and working for a startup. In a startup, you've got to be willing to roll up your sleeves and be a jack of all trades. And if you don't know how to do it, you figure it out. And, uh, you know, we, it, 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 the big thing is um, really having that rally cry and having something that everybody can come together. You know, one of our core values at Ablative Solutions is together we win. We're not a bunch of individuals. We're a team. And my expectation and our culture is I don't care what your business card says. I don't know what your title is. If your colleagues need your help, you're going to chip in and you're going to do it. And and I hold myself to that standard as well, that if my team needs me to do something, it doesn't matter what it is. You know, if I need to take out the garbage, I take out the garbage, you know, and, and that's the kind of culture you need in a startup in order to survive. And you need that flexibility to bring in people who, you know, um, aren't so myopic in a very specific role, they have to be flexible and they have to be able to, to do multiple things because you can't afford, you know, for example, um, in product development, you have quality, you have R&D, you have regulatory. At Ablative Solutions, we are a combination product. We have a catheter delivery system, but we also have alcohol as our, uh, our neurolytic agent, so we're a combo. I can't afford to have a drug quality, a drug R&D, a drug regulatory, a device quality. You know, I can't hire multiple people to cover all of those different things. So it's how do you bring in the right team that each has their own unique expertise that they bring to the table, but then they all work together as, as a team and, and make each other better. Yeah, so you brought up uh, the drug combo. I'm, I'm curious for both of you, uh, how much are you competing against, like, pharma? Not maybe competing, but they're the ones, that the companion diagnostics is where they wanted to push you to go. Is that right? I think very little, very little okay. overlap, yeah. Yeah. I'm curious at your stage then, how much, like, you know, med tech versus pharma. Med tech is starting to compete in certain areas where pharma got a little comfortable uh, and I could talk about this here because this is biomed device, uh, so I really don't I don't care about the farm industry as much. But I'm curious on how th- that's been difficult. I've asked people on this on the podcast before that have had um, disease states that were generally treated, specifically in the neurospace, with a drug that were rather inefficient, 
and now we're providing a solution that would take away a large revenue stream from them. Have you come across this at all where there's been some other pressures from the pharma industry about a med tech company coming in and taking business? You can also decline to answer this. <laughs> Just, yeah. yeah, no, it's, it, it's a great question. And I don't know that it's so much that pharma or, or pharma companies, uh, you know, are, are trying to undermine the device companies. I'm sure it happens, but I, I, I haven't seen examples of that necessarily. It's more getting the inertia of the physicians who are used to prescribing medications to consider a, an interventional or a, or a device-based treatment. Um, again, as I said, when I was in the neuromodulation space for depression, we, you know, our, our key uh, call point was was psychiatry, and it took, you know, and and still to this day, it's taking those med tech companies a lot of energy to convince psychiatrists not to write another prescription, but to actually consider a device, and you know, the same for me, hypertension experts have this whole armamentarium of antihypertensive medications that actually work quite well. I, I have no problem going on the record and saying the meds work. The problem is patients won't take them. And the you know uh, prevalence of non-compliance in that patient population is just through the roof. Um, and so we see this as an alternative uh, to adding another medication that the patient may or may not take. Um, so it's, it's, it's changing the mindsets of the physicians that are managing these patients. Awesome. Uh, so two more questions, and then we'll wrap things up. Um, things, best advice for the startups who are listening into the podcast, um, what's, your, what's your single biggest, like, gotcha moment where that you need to be aware of, right? We, the whole thing we, we talk about is startup life is like someone shut all the lights off in a room, dumped a bunch of junk in your way, and you got to get to the other side, right? Safely, somehow. So where have you bumped your knee? Uh, and then what, are, what is your single best piece of advice? And that's for both of you. I think there are unique challenges in getting any technology out of academia at a very high level. And I think there, as an academic, moving from an, acad like an academic research kind of mindset to startup, value is placed in very different areas. And it was a very dramatic shift for me and my co-founder to go from PhD student postdoc to entrepreneurs and um, investors see value in different places than academics do and how that relates to the intellectual property. And I won't get into the weeds, but uh, for anyone listening, more than happy to be a, a resource if you're trying to bring technology out of academia, uh, can kind of walk you through some of the hurdles we stumbled on. Um, it's more challenging than one might think. The biggest piece of advice is, I think I say this all the time, myself and my co-founder, the hardest part of starting a company is doing it. You know, everyone says, oh, that sounds so exciting. Uh, it's really the hardest part is just deciding to do it. Uh, once you do it, there's no, po there's, no, there's no other choice but to execute or you fail. So I really think that's, it's simple, but that would be just do it. That's the hardest part. So I think I'll answer your second question first, and that is advice um, to myself. Uh, assume nothing. 
you know, ask, the, ask yourself and ask your team those tough questions. Go out and validate your assumptions with the people who matter, which is your, your customer base. Um, because oftentimes you think you might know what they need or what they want. And when you go out and you actually talk to them, it's very different. So I am very much an advocate for making sure that I'm listening uh, to the customers and, and listening to the, the, the end users, whether that's the physicians or even directly to the patients to really understand what their needs are and what their wants are. Um, so assume nothing is, is probably um, uh, the, the best advice I could give my, my younger self. And I think that kind of goes along with your first question, right? Which is where where can you mess things up or where can you you bump your knee is if you do assume something. And then you get so far down a pathway that you can't change and you realize, oh no, you know, you have that oh no moment. Yeah, that's great. Uh, the last question, so we got to hear from Erica Chung, who was the whistleblower from Theranos at the, the main stage. And then we came here and we did a Q&A. And one of the uh, women in the audience asked a question, and it was, as a women entrepreneur, you know, Erica worked for the, at one point, Elizabeth Holmes was an icon in the med tech space, in diagnostic, as a female entrepreneur. And then she ruined that for a lot of female entrepreneurs. And so her question was, for someone who is in the diagnostic space, she gets compared unfairly Actually, she's right there. <laughs> two, two women entrepreneurs, uh, to Elizabeth Holmes, um, frequently from investors. Um, how much did you raise in your Series A? Ten million. Ten million. Sorry. Ten million. And you had in your Series D. Series D. Uh, we just closed our fourth tranche at ninety-one million. At ninety-one million. Okay, so we've had Renee Ryan on from Cala Health, who raised like seventy million in a Series D. So this is a, a lot of money here. My question is, and I don't know if it's a question or just I want to hear your comments. Female-led companies don't get as much venture capital dollars. The statistics are out there. It's not like we're disputing anything. We're all aware of it. So I'm just curious, for you as women entrepreneurs, what is that, what is that like? What's been your experience with, with the raising capital, but just being a female-led company? Um, just kind of off the heels of the fact that someone messed it up for everybody, <laughs> right? So I'm just curious on your thoughts, opinions. Yeah. I can uh, thankfully say I personally have not seen that. So uh, when the Theranos news broke, uh, myself and all of my other female colleagues gasped and said, oh, God, no, please. You know, we've worked so hard to get as far as we have. This is not going to help us. Um, maybe it's because I'm not in the diagnostic space, um, but I, uh, you know, I've been been very blessed uh, throughout my career, whether it's you know in a CEO role or, or other roles that I've been in, um, where, you know, I'm not going to say that there's not discrimination, but, um, you know, I, I feel like I've always had a fair shot, and I've had some really great mentors that have helped me along the way. So we are. In Elizabeth's home space, we are in diagnostics. Luckily, we're doing infectious disease and not blood chemistry, but we do have a black box that we say can detect many, many things in a patient sample all at one time. 
very quickly. Um, so we actually intentionally remove that black box at every meeting and say, we'll, we'll show you how it works inside. So we definitely get the comparison. Uh, my co-founder jokes that I need to stop wearing black turtlenecks, but I really love a turtleneck, so I refuse to let her have that on me. Um, but for the most part, it's just curiosity. It's not actually manifesting in any negative way. It's just, wow, this sounds a lot like that. Can you explain the difference? And obviously we do. And obviously we both have PhDs and a scientific advisory board and credible investors who invest in companies like ours. And so I don't think it's actually had any negative effects, but there are superficial effects that uh, at this point, we just kind of have to roll with it. And I will say, I agree that being being women co-founders actually been an asset for us in our experience. So, you know, we're privileged to be based here in Cambridge, but it's opened more doors for us. And uh, we've had nothing but support. I think being two women running women's health company is a great branding opportunity. We didn't even intend for that to be what it was, but I think it wouldn't make sense for men to be running a women's health company. So I, I agree in that. I think it's it's only been an asset. That, that's great. So uh, I'll include uh, Kate and Allison's uh, LinkedIn in our show notes, right? So for people who are watching, it's different. They can talk to you right now. But for uh, the people listening in, I'll have your LinkedIn on there. So as, as long as people are okay to reach out with questions, uh, that sort of thing. But uh, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for bearing with me, uh, being a live thanks podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is kind of kind of weird uh, doing it in front of a live audience, but, but thanks for doing it. And uh... thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.